Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for episode 10 of Bygone Tales. First thing I need to uh, address tonight, we desperately need some reviews. If you are listening to the show and enjoying it on iTunes, please consider leaving us a review. Uh, If you're listening to us on Google Play or Stitcher, also, please consider leaving us a review. The more reviews we can get, the more notoriety we get, the more likely we are to increase our audience, and the more likely we are to stay around a while. Well, we have one story on offer tonight. Uh, The story tonight is by Wilkie Collins. Uh, Wilkie Collins was born in 1824, died in 1889. He was an English playwright, novelist, and short story writer, probably most well-known for his work... The Lady in White, and The Moonstone. Uh, The Moonstone is widely considered to be the first modern English detective novel. In 1851, he was introduced to Charles Dickens by a mutual friend, and the two of them became close friends, and uh, Dickens became a mentor and uh, collaborator of, of Wilkie Collins. And in fact, many of his early works appeared in magazines that were edited by, by Charles Dickens. Well, without further ado, let's get into the story. The Traveler's Story of a Terribly Strange Bed by Wilkie Collins Prologue to the Tale Before I begin, by the aid of my wife's patient attention and ready pen, to relate any of the stories which I have heard at various times from persons whose likenesses I have been employed to take, it will not be amiss if I try to secure the reader's interest in the following pages by briefly explaining how I became possessed of the narrative matter of which they contain. Of myself, I have nothing to say but that I have followed the profession of a traveling portrait painter for the last fifteen years. The pursuit of my calling has not only led me all through England, but has taken me twice to Scotland and once to Ireland. In moving from district to district, I am never guided beforehand by any settled plan, Sometimes the letters of recommendation which I get from persons who are satisfied with the work I have done for them determine the direction in which I travel. Sometimes I hear of a new neighborhood in which there is no resident artist of ability and remove thither on speculation. Sometimes my friends among the picture dealers say a good word on my behalf to their rich customers and so pave the way for me in large towns. Sometimes my prosperous and famous brother artists hearing of small commissions which it is not worth their while to accept, mention my name and procure me introductions to pleasant country houses. Thus I get on, now in one way and now in another, not winning a reputation or making a fortune, but happier, perhaps, on the whole, than many men who have got both the one and the other. So at least I try to think now, though I started in my youth with as high an ambition as the best of them. Thank God it is not my business here to speak of the pastimes and their disappointments. A twinge of the old hopeless heartache comes over me sometimes still when I think of my student days. One peculiarity of my present way of life is that it brings me into contact with all sorts of characters. I almost feel, by this time, as if I had painted every civilized variety of the human race. Upon the whole, my experience of the world, rough as it has been, has not taught me to think unkindly of my fellow creatures. I have certainly received such treatment at the hands of some of my sitters 
as I could not describe without saddening and shocking any kind-hearted reader. But, taking one year and one place with another, I have cause to remember with gratitude and respect, sometimes even with friendship and affection, a very large proportion of the numerous persons who have employed me. Some of the results of my experience are now curious in a moral point of view. For example, I have found women almost uniformly less delicate in asking me about my terms and less generous in remunerating me for my services than men. On the other hand, men, within my knowledge, are decidedly vainer of their personal attractions and more vexatiously anxious to have them done full justice to on canvas than women. Taking both sexes together, I have found young people, for the most part, more gentle, more reasonable, and more considerate than old, and, summing up in a general way my experience of different ranks, which extends, let me premise, all the way down from peers to publicans, I have met with most of my formal and ungracious receptions among rich people of uncertain social standing. The highest classes and the lowest among my employers almost always contrive, in widely different ways, of course, to make me feel at home as soon as I enter their houses. The one great obstacle that I have to contend with in the practice of my profession is not, as some persons may imagine, the difficulty of making my sitters keep their heads still while I paint them, but the difficulty of getting them to preserve the natural look and the everyday peculiarities of dress and manner. People will assume an expression, will brush up their hair, will correct any little characteristic carelessness in their apparel, will, in short, when they want to have their likeness taken, look as if they were sitting for their pictures. If I paint them under these artificial circumstances, I fail, of course, to present them in their habitual aspect, and my portrait, as a necessary consequence, disappoints everybody, the sitter always included. When we wish to judge of a man's character by his handwriting, we want his customary scrawl dashed off with his common workaday pen, not his best small text traced laboriously with the finest procurable crow-quill point. So it is with portrait painting, which is, after all, nothing but a right reading of the externals of character recognizably presented to the view of others. Experience, after repeated trials, has proved to me that the only way of getting sitters who persist in assuming a set look to resume their habitual expression is to lead them into talking about some subject in which they are greatly interested. If I can only beguile them into speaking earnestly, no matter on what topic, I am sure of recovering their natural expression, sure of seeing all the little precious everyday peculiarities of the man or woman peep out, one after another, quite unawares. The long, maundering stories about nothing, the wearisome recitals of petty grievances, the local anecdotes unrelieved by the faintest suspicion of anything like general interest, which I have been condemned to hear as a consequence of thawing the ice of the features of formal sitters, by the method just described, would fill hundreds of volumes and promote the repose of thousands of readers. On the other hand, if I have suffered under the tediousness of the many, 
I have not been without my compensating gains from the wisdom and experience of the few. To some of my sitters, I have been indebted for information which has enlarged my mind. To some, for advice which has lightened my heart. To some, for narratives of strange adventure which riveted my attention at the time, which have served to interest and amuse my fireside circle for many years past, and which are now, I would fain hope, destined to make kind friends for me among a wider audience than any that I have yet addressed. Singularly enough, almost all the best stories that I have heard from my sitters have been told by accident. I only remember two cases in which a story was volunteered to me, and, although I have often tried the experiment, I cannot call to mind even a single instance in which leading questions, as the lawyers call them, on my part, addressed to a sitter, ever produced any result worth recording. Over and over again, I have been disastrously successful in encouraging dull people to weary me. But the clever people, who have something interesting to say, seem, so far as I have observed them, to acknowledge no other stimulant than chance. For every story which I propose including in the present collection, excepting one, I have been indebted, in the first instance, to the capricious influence of the same chance. Something my sitter has seen about me, something I have remarked in my sitter, or in the room in which I take the likeness, or in the neighborhood through which I pass on my way to work, has suggested the necessary association, or has started the right train of recollections, and then the story appeared to begin of its own accord. Occasionally, the most casual notice on my part of some unpromising object has smoothed the way for the relation of a long and interesting narrative. I first heard one of the most dramatic of the stories that will be presented in this book merely through being carelessly inquisitive to know the history of a stuffed poodle dog. It is thus not without reason that I lay some stress on the desirableness of prefacing each one of the following narratives by a brief account of the curious manner in which I became possessed of it. As to my capacity for repeating these stories correctly, I can answer for it that my memory may be trusted. I may claim it as a merit, because it is, after all, a mechanical one, that I forget nothing and that I can call long-past conversations and events as readily to my recollection as if they had happened but a few weeks ago. Of two things, at least, I feel tolerably certain beforehand in meditating over the contents of this book. First, that I can repeat correctly all that I have heard, and secondly, that I have never missed anything worth hearing when my sitters were addressing me on an interesting subject. Although I cannot take the lead in talking while I am engaged in painting, I can listen while others speak, and work all the better for it. So much in the way of general preface to the pages for which I am about to ask the reader's attention. Let me now advance to particulars, and describe how I came to hear the first story in the present collection. I begin with it because it is the story that I have oftenest rehearsed, to borrow a phrase from the stage. Wherever I go, I am sooner or later sure to tell it. Only last night I was persuaded into repeating it once more by the inhabitants of the farmhouse in which I am now staying. Not many years ago, on returning from a short holiday visit to a friend settled in Paris, 
I found professional letters awaiting me at my agents in London, which required my immediate presence in Liverpool. Without stopping to unpack, I proceeded by the first conveyance to my new destination, and, calling at the picture dealer's shop, where portrait painting engagements were received for me, found, to my great satisfaction, that I had remunerative employment in prospect, in and about Liverpool, for at least two months to come. I was putting up my letters in high spirits, and was just leaving the picture dealer's shop to look out for comfortable lodgings, when I was met at the door by the landlord of one of the largest hotels in Liverpool, an old acquaintance whom I had known as manager of a tavern in London in my student days. "'Mr. Kirby!' he exclaimed in great astonishment. "'What an unexpected meeting! The last man in the world whom I expected to see, and yet the very man whose services I want to make use of!' "'What? More work for me?' said I. "'Are all the people in Liverpool going to have their portraits painted?' I only know of one, replied the landlord, a gentleman staying at my hotel who wants a chalk drawing done for him. I was on my way here to acquire of any artist whom our picture-dealing friend could recommend. How glad I am that I met you before I had committed myself to employing a stranger. Is this likeness wanted at once, I asked, thinking of the number of engagements that I had already got in my pocket. Immediately! "'Today, this very hour, if possible,' said the landlord. "'Mr. Faulkner, the gentleman I am speaking of, "'was to have sailed yesterday for the Brazils from this place, "'but the wind shifted last night to the wrong quarter, "'and he came ashore again this morning. "'He may, of course, be detained here for some time, "'but he may also be called on board ship at half an hour's notice, "'if the wind shifts back again in the right direction.' This uncertainty makes it a matter of importance that the likeness should be begun immediately. Undertake it if you possibly can, for Mr. Faulkner's a liberal gentleman who is sure to give you your own terms. I reflected for a minute or two. The portrait was only wanted in chalk and would not take long. Besides, I might finish it in the evening if my other engagements pressed hard upon me in the daytime. Why not leave my luggage at the picture dealers, put off looking for lodgings till night, and secure the new commission boldly by going back at once with the landlord to the hotel? I decided on following this course almost as soon as the idea occurred to me. Put my chalks in my pocket, and a sheet of drawing paper in the first of my portfolios that came to hand, and so presented myself before Mr. Faulkner ready to take his likeness, literally at five minutes' notice. I found him a very pleasant, intelligent man, young and handsome. He had been a great traveler, had visited all the wonders of the East, and was now about to explore the wilds of the vast South American continent. Thus much he told me good-humoredly and unconstrainedly while I was preparing my drawing materials. As soon as I had put him in the right light and position and had seated myself opposite to him, he changed the subject of conversation and asked me a little confusedly, as I thought, if it was not a customary practice among portrait painters to gloss over the faults of their sitters' faces and to make as much a possible of any good point which their features might possess. Certainly, I answered, you have described the whole art and mystery of successful portrait painting in a few words. May I beg, then, he said, 
that you will depart from the usual practice in my case and draw me with all my defects, exactly as I am. The fact is, he went on after a moment's pause, the likeness you are now preparing to take is intended for my mother. My roving disposition makes me a great anxiety to her, and she parted from me this last time very sadly and unwillingly. I don't know how the idea came into my head, but it struck me this morning that I could not better employ the time while I was delayed here on shore than by getting my likeness done to send her as a keepsake. She has no portrait of me since I was a child, and she is sure to value a drawing of me more than anything else I could send to her. I only trouble you with this explanation to prove that I am really sincere in my wish to be drawn unflatteringly, exactly as I am. Secretly respecting and admiring him for what he had just said, I promised that his directions should be implicitly followed, and began to work immediately. Before I had pursued my occupation for ten minutes, the conversation began to flag, and the usual obstacle to my success with a sitter gradually set itself up between us. Quite unconsciously, of course, Mr. Faulkner stiffened his neck, shut his mouth, and contracted his eyebrows, evidently under the impression that he was facilitating the process of taking his portrait by making his face as like a lifeless mask as possible. All traces of his natural animated expression were fast disappearing, and he was beginning to change into a heavy and rather melancholy-looking man. The complete alteration was of no great consequence so long as I was only engaged in drawing the outlines of his face and the general form of his features. I accordingly worked on doggedly for more than an hour, then left off to point my chalks again, and to give my sitter a few minutes' rest. Thus far, the likeness had not suffered through Mr. Faulkner's unfortunate notion of the right way of sitting for his portrait. But the time of difficulty, as I well knew, was to come. It was impossible for me to think of putting any expression into the drawing unless I could contrive some means, when he resumed his chair, of making him look like himself again. I will talk to him about foreign parts, thought I, and try if I can't make him forget that he is sitting for his picture in that way. While I was pointing my chalks, Mr. Faulkner was walking up and down the room. He chanced to see the portfolio I had brought with me leaning against the wall and ask if there were any sketches in it. I told him that there were a few which I had made during my recent stay in Paris. In Paris, he repeated with a look of interest. May I see them? I gave him the permission he asked as a matter of course. Sitting down, he took the portfolio on his knee and began to look through it. He turned over the first five sketches rapidly enough, but when he came to the sixth, I saw that he took the drawing out of the portfolio, carried it to the window, and remained silently absorbed in the contemplation of it for full five minutes. After that, he turned around to me and asked very anxiously if I had any objection to part with that sketch. It was the least interesting drawing of the collection, merely a view in one of the streets running by the backs of the houses in the Palace Royale. Some four or five of these houses were comprised in the view, which was of no particular use to me in any way, and which was too valueless as a work of art for me to think of selling it. I begged his acceptance of it at once. He thanked me quite warmly, and then seeing that I looked a little surprised at the odd selection he had made from my sketches, 
laughingly asked me if I could guess why he had been so anxious to become possessed of the view which I had given him. Probably, I answered, there is some remarkable historical association connected with that street at the back of the Palace Royale, of which I am ignorant. No, said Mr. Faulkner, at least none that I know of. The only association connected with the place, in my mind, is a purely personal association. Look at this house in your drawing, the house with the water pipe running down it from top to bottom. I once passed a night there, a night I shall never forget to the day of my death. I have had some awkward traveling adventures in my time, but that adventure... Well, never mind. Suppose we begin the sitting. I make a bad return for your kindness in giving me the sketch by thus wasting your time in mere talk. Come, come, thought I, as we went back to the sitter's chair. I shall see your natural expression on your face if I can only get you to talk about that adventure. It was easy enough to lead him in the right direction. At the first hint from me, he returned to the subject of the house in the back street. Without, I hope, showing any undue curiosity, I contrived to let him see that I felt a deep interest in everything he now said. After two or three preliminary hesitations, he at last, to my great joy, fairly started on the narrative of his adventure. In the interest of his subject, he soon completely forgot that he was sitting for his portrait. The very expression that I wanted came over his face, and my drawing proceeded toward completion in the right direction and to the best purpose. At every fresh touch, I felt more and more certain that I was now getting the better of my grand difficulty, and I enjoyed the additional gratification of having my work lightened by the recital of a true story, which possessed, in my estimation, all the excitement of the most exciting romance. This, as I recollect it, is how Mr. Faulkner told me his adventure. The Tale Shortly after my education at college was finished, I happened to be staying at Paris with an English friend. We were both young men then, and lived, I am afraid, rather a wild life in the delightful city of our sojourn. One night we were idling about the neighborhood of the Palace Royale, doubtful to what amusement we should next betake ourselves. My friend proposed to visit Frascati's, but his suggestion was not to my taste. I knew Frascati's, as the French saying is, by heart, had lost and won plenty of five-franc pieces there, merely for amusement's sake, until it was amusement no longer, and was thoroughly tired, in fact, of all the ghastly respectabilities of such a social anomaly as a respectable gambling house. For heaven's sake, said I to my friend, let us go somewhere where we can see a little genuine blackguard poverty-stricken gaming with no false gingerbread glitter thrown over it all. Let us get away from fashionable frascatis to a house where they don't mind letting in a man with a ragged coat or a man with no coat, ragged or otherwise. Very well, said my friend. We needn't go out of the Palace Royale to find the sort of company you want. Here's the place just before us, as blackguard a place, by all report, as you could possibly wish to see. In another minute, we arrived at the door and entered the house, the back of which you have drawn in your sketch. When we got upstairs and had left our hats and sticks with the doorkeeper, we were admitted into the chief gambling room, 
We did not find many people assembled there, but few as the men were who looked up at us on our entrance, they were all types, lamentably true types, of their respective classes. We had come to see blackguards, but these men were something worse. There is a comic side, more or less appreciable, in all blackguardism. Here, there was nothing but tragedy. Mute, weird tragedy. The quiet in the room was horrible. The thin, haggard, long-haired young man, whose sunken eyes fiercely watched the turning up of the cards, never spoke. The flabby, fat-faced, pimply player, who pricked his piece of pasteboard, perseveringly to register how often black won and how often red, never spoke. The dirty, wrinkled old man with the vulture eyes and the darned greatcoat who had lost his last sou and still looked on desperately after he could play no longer, never spoke. Even the voice of the croupier sounded as if it were strangely dulled and thickened in the atmosphere of the room. I had entered the place to laugh, but the spectacle before me was something to weep over. I soon found it necessary to take refuge in excitement from the depression of spirits which was fast stealing on me. Unfortunately, I sought the nearest excitement by going to the table and beginning to play. Still more unfortunately, as the event will show, I won. Won prodigiously. Won incredibly. Won at such a rate that the regular players at the table crowded round me and, staring at my stakes with hungry, superstitious eyes, whispered to one another that the English stranger was going to break the bank. The game was rouge et noir. I had played it at every city in Europe, without, however, the care or the wish to study the theory of chances that philosopher's stone of all gamblers. And a gambler, in the strictest sense of the word, I had never been. I was heart whole from the corroding passion for play. My gaming was a mere idle amusement. I never resorted to it by necessity because I never knew what it was to want money. I never practiced it so incessantly as to lose more than I could afford or to gain more than I could coolly pocket without being thrown off my balance by my good luck. In short, I had hitherto frequented gambling tables, just as I frequented ballrooms and opera houses, because they amused me, and because I had nothing better to do with my leisure hours. But on this occasion, it was very different. Now, for the first time in my life, I felt what the passion for play really was. My success first bewildered, and then, in the most literal meaning of the word, intoxicated me. Incredibly as it may appear, it is nevertheless true that I only lost when I attempted to estimate chances and played according to previous calculation. If I left everything to luck and staked without any care or consideration, I was sure to win to win in the face of every recognized probability in favor of the bank. At first, some of the men present ventured their money safely enough on my color, but I speedily increased my stakes to sums which they dared not risk. One after another, they left off playing and breathlessly looked on at my game. Still, time after time, I staked higher and higher and still won. The excitement in the room rose to fever pitch, 
The silence was interrupted by a deep, muttered chorus of oaths and exclamations in different languages, every time the gold was shoveled across to my side of the table. Even the imperturbable croupier dashed his rake on the floor in a French fury of astonishment at my success. But one man present preserved his self-possession, and that man was my friend. He came to my side, and whispering in English, begged me to leave the place, satisfied with what I had already gained. I must do him the justice to say that he repeated his warnings and entreaties several times, and only left me and went away after I had rejected his advice. I was, to all intents and purposes, gambling drunk, in terms which rendered it impossible for him to address me again that evening. Shortly after he had gone, a hoarse voice behind me cried, Permit me, my dear sir, permit me to restore to their proper place two Napoleons which you have dropped. Wonderful luck, sir. I pledge to you my word of honor as an old soldier. In the course of my long experience in this sort of thing, I never saw such luck as yours. Never. Go on, sir. Sacre Milbon, go on boldly and break the bank. I turned round and saw, nodding and smiling at me with inveterate civility, a tall man dressed in a frogged and braided surtout. If I had been in my senses, I should have considered him personally as being rather a suspicious specimen of an old soldier. He had goggling, bloodshot eyes, mangy mustaches, and a broken nose. His voice betrayed a barrack-room intonation of the worst order, and he had the dirtiest pair of hands I ever saw, even in France. These little personal peculiarities exercised, however, no repelling influence on me. In the mad excitement, the reckless triumph of that moment, I was ready to fraternize with anybody who encouraged me in my game. I accepted the old soldier's offered pinch of snuff, clapped him on the back, and swore he was the honestest fellow in the world, the most glorious relic of the grand army that I had ever met with. Go on, cried my military friend, snapping his fingers in ecstasy. Go on and win. Break the bank. Mil tonnerre, my gallant English comrade, break the bank. And I did go on. Went on at such a rate that in another quarter of an hour, the croupier called out, Gentlemen, the bank has discontinued for tonight. All the notes and all the gold in that bank now lay in a heap under my hands. The whole floating capital of the gambling house was waiting to pour into my pockets. Tie up the money in your pocket handkerchief, my worthy sir, said the old soldier, as I wildly plunged my hands into my heap of gold. Tie it up as we used to tie up a bit of dinner in the Grand Army. Your winnings are too heavy for any breeches pockets that were ever sewed. There, that's it. Shovel them in, notes and all. Credit. What luck. Stop. Another Napoleon on the floor. Ah, sacré petit poisson de Napoleon. I have found thee at last. Now then, sir. Two tight double knots. Each way with your honorable permission and the money safe. Feel it, fortunate sir, hard and round as a cannonball. Ah, bah, if only they fired such cannonballs at us at Austerlitz. Nom de dune peep, if they only had. And now, as an ancient grenadier, 
as an ex-brave of the French army, what remains for me to do? I ask, what? Simply this, to entreat my valued English friend to drink a bottle of champagne with me and toast the goddess of fortune in foaming goblets before we part. Excellent, ex-brave, convivial, ancient grenadier, champagne by all means, an English cheer for an old soldier, hurrah, hurrah, another English cheer for the goddess fortune, hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Bravo, the Englishman, the amiable, gracious Englishman, in whose veins circulates the vivacious blood of France. Another glass? Ah, bah, the bottle is empty. Never mind. Vive la vin. Aye, the old soldier, order another bottle and half a pound of bonbons with it. No, no, ex-brave, never, ancient grenadier. Your bottle last time, my bottle this. Behold it. Toast away, the French army, the great Napoleon, the present company, the croupier, the honest croupier's wife and daughters, if he has any, the ladies generally, everybody in the world. By the time the second bottle of champagne was emptied, I felt as if I had been drinking liquid fire. My brain seemed all aflame. No excess in wine had ever had this effect on me before in my life. Was it the result of a stimulant acting upon my system when I was in a highly excited state? Was my stomach in a particularly disordered condition? Or was the champagne amazingly strong? Ex-brave of the French army, cried I in a mad state of exhilaration. I am on fire. How are you? You have set me on fire. Do you hear, my hero of Austerlitz? Let us have a third bottle of champagne to put the flame out. The old soldier wagged his head, rolled his goggle eyes until I expected to see them slip out of their sockets, placed his dirty forefinger by the side of his broken nose, solemnly ejaculated, Coffee! and immediately ran off into an inner room. The word, pronounced by the eccentric veteran, seemed to have a magical effect on the rest of the company present. With one accord, they all rose to depart. Probably they had expected to profit by my intoxication, but finding that my new friend was benevolently bent on preventing me from getting dead drunk, had now abandoned all hope of thriving pleasantly on my winnings. Whatever their motive might be, at any rate, they went away in a body. When the old soldier returned and sat down again opposite to me at the table, we had the room to ourselves. I could see the croupier, in a sort of vestibule which opened out of it, eating his supper in solitude. The silence was now deeper than ever. A sudden change, too, had come over the ex-brave. He assumed a portentously solemn look, and when he spoke to me again, his speech was ornamented by no oaths, enforced by no finger-snapping, enlivened by no apostrophes or exclamations. Listen, my dear sir, said he in mysteriously confidential tones. Listen to an old soldier's advice. I have been to the mistress of the house, a very charming woman with a genius for cookery, to impress on her the necessity of making us some particularly strong and good coffee. You must drink this coffee in order to get rid of your little amiable exaltation of spirits before you think of going home. You must, my good and gracious friend. With all that money to take home tonight, it is a sacred duty to yourself to have clear wits about you. You are known to be a winner to an enormous extent by several gentlemen present tonight, who, in a certain point of view, are very worthy and excellent fellows. 
But they are mortal men, my dear sir, and they have their amiable weaknesses. Need I say more? Ah, no, no. You understand me. Now, this is what you must do. Send for a cabriolet when you feel quite well again. Draw up all the windows when you get into it, and tell the driver to take you home only through the large and well-lighted thoroughfares. Do this, and you and your money will be safe. Do this, and tomorrow you will thank an old soldier for giving you a word of honest advice. Just as the ex-brave ended his oration in very lachrymose tones, the coffee came in, ready poured out in two cups. My attentive friend handed me one of the cups with a bow. I was parched with thirst and drank it off at a draught. Almost instantly afterwards, I was seized with a fit of giddiness and felt more completely intoxicated than ever. The room whirled around and around furiously. The old soldier seemed to be regularly bobbing up and down before me like the piston of a steam engine. I was half deafened by a violent singing in my ears. A feeling of utter bewilderment, helplessness, idiocy overcame me. I rose from my chair, holding on by the table to keep my balance, and stammered out that I felt dreadfully unwell. So unwell that I did not know how I was to get home. My dear friend, answered the old soldier, and even his voice seemed to be bobbing up and down as he spoke. My dear friend, it would be madness for you to go home in your state. You would be sure to lose your money. You might be robbed and murdered with the greatest ease. I am going to sleep here. Do you sleep here too? They make up capital beds in this house. Take one, sleep off the effects of the wine, and go home safely with your winnings tomorrow. Tomorrow, in broad daylight. I had but two ideas left. One, that I must never let go hold of my handkerchief full of money. The other, that I must lie down somewhere immediately and fall off into a comfortable sleep. So I agreed to the proposal about the bed and took the offered arm of the old soldier, carrying my money with my disengaged hand. Preceded by the croupier, we passed along some passages and up a flight of stairs into the bedroom which I was to occupy. The ex-brave shook me warmly by the hand, proposed that we should breakfast together, and then, followed by the croupier, left me for the night. I ran to the wash-hand stand, drank some of the water in my jug, poured the rest out, and plunged my face into it, then sat down in a chair and tried to compose myself. I soon felt better. The change from my lungs from the fetid atmosphere of the gambling room to the cool air of the apartment I now occupied, the almost equally refreshing change from my eyes from the glaring gaslights of the salon to the dim, quiet flicker of one bedroom candle, aided wonderfully the restorative effects of cold water. The giddiness left me, and I began to feel a little like a reasonable being again. My first thought was of the risk of sleeping all night in a gambling house. My second, of the still greater risk of trying to get out after the house was closed, and of going home alone at night through the streets of Paris with a large sum of money about me. I had slept in worse places than this on my travels, so I determined to lock, bolt, and barricade my door and take my chance till the next morning. Accordingly, I secured myself against all intrusion, looked under the bed and into the cupboard, tried the fastening of the window, 
and then, satisfied that I had taken every proper precaution, pulled off my upper clothing, put my light, which was a dim one, on the hearth among a feathery litter of wood ashes, and got into bed with the handkerchief full of money under my pillow. I soon felt not only that I could not go to sleep, but that I could not even close my eyes. I was wide awake and in a high fever. Every nerve in my body trembled. Every one of my senses seemed to be preternaturally sharpened. I tossed and rolled and tried every kind of position and perseveringly sought out the cold corners of the bed, and all to no purpose. Now I thrust my arms over the clothes. Now I poked them under the clothes. Now I violently shot my legs straight out down to the bottom of the bed. Now I convulsively coiled them up as near my chin as they would go. Now I shook out my crumpled pillow, changed it to the cool side, patted it flat, and lay down quietly on my back. Now I fiercely doubled it in two, set it up on end, thrust it against the board of the bed, and tried a sitting posture. Every effort was in vain. I groaned with vexation as I felt that I was in for a sleepless night. What could I do? I had no book to read, and yet, unless I found out some method of diverting my mind, I felt certain that I was in the condition to imagine all sorts of horrors, to rack my brain with foreboding of every possible and impossible danger. In short, to pass the night in suffering all conceivable varieties of nervous terror. I raised myself on my elbow and looked about the room, which was brightened by a lovely moonlight pouring straight through the window, to see if it contained any pictures or ornaments that I could at all clearly distinguish. While my eyes wandered from wall to wall, a remembrance of Le Mestre's delightful little book, Voyage à Tour de ma Chambre, occurred to me. I resolved to imitate the French author and find occupation and amusement enough to relieve the tedium of my wakefulness by making a mental inventory of every article of furniture I could see, and by following up to their sources the multitude of associations which even a chair, a table, or a wash-hand stand may be made to call forth. In the nervous, unsettled state of my mind, at that moment, I found it much easier to make my inventory than to make my reflections, and thereupon soon gave up all hope of thinking in Le Mastre's fanciful track, or, indeed, of thinking at all. I looked about the room at the different articles of furniture, and did nothing more. There was first the bed I was lying in, a four-post bed of all things in the world to meet with in Paris. Yes, a thoroughly clumsy British four-poster with the regular top lined with chintz, the regular fringed valance all around, the regular stifling, unwholesome curtains, which I remembered having mechanically drawn back against the posts, without particular noticing the bed when I first got into the room. Then there was the marble-topped wash-hand stand, from which the water I had spilled in my hurry to pour it out was still dripping slowly and more slowly on to the brick floor. Then two small chairs with my coat, waistcoat, and trousers flung on them. Then a large elbow chair covered with dirty white dimity and my cravat and shirt collar thrown over the back. Then a chest of drawers with two of the brass handles off and a tawdry, broken china inkstand placed on it by way of ornament for the top. Then the dressing table, adorned by a very small-looking glass and a very large pincushion. 
then the window, an unusually large window, then a dark old picture which the feeble candle only dimly showed me. It was a picture of a fellow in a high Spanish hat, crowned with a plume of towering feathers, a swarthy, sinister ruffian, looking upward, shading his eyes with his hand, and looking intently upward. It might be at some tall gallows at which he was going to be hanged. At any rate, he had the appearance of thoroughly deserving it. The picture put a kind of constraint upon me to look upward, too, at the top of the bed. It was a gloomy and not an interesting object, and I looked back at the picture. I counted the feathers in the man's hat. They stood out in relief, three white, two green. I observed the crown of his hat, which was of conical shape, according to the fashion, supposed to have been favored by Guido Fox. I wondered what he was looking up at. It couldn't be at the stars. Such a desperado was neither astrologer nor astronomer. It must be at the high gallows, and he was going to be hanged presently. Would the executioner come into possession of his conical crowned hat and plume of feathers? I counted the feathers again. Three white, two green. While I still lingered over this very improving and intellectual enjoyment, my thoughts insensibly began to wander. The moonlight shining into the room reminded me of a certain moonlit night in England, the night after a picnic party in a Welsh valley, every incident of the drive homeward through lovely scenery which the moonlight made lovelier than ever came back to my remembrance, though I had never given the picnic a thought for years, though if I had tried to recollect it, I could certainly have recalled little or nothing of that scene long past. Of all the wonderful faculties that help to tell us we are immortal, which speaks the sublime truth more eloquently than memory? Here was I, in a strange house of the most suspicious character, in a situation of uncertainty, and even of peril, which might seem to make the cruel exercise of my recollection almost out of the question, nevertheless remembering, quite involuntarily, places, people, conversations, minute circumstances of every kind which I had thought forgotten forever, which I could not possibly have recalled at will, even under the most favorable auspices, and what cause had produced in a moment the whole of this strange, complicated, mysterious effect? nothing but some rays of moonlight shining in at my bedroom window. I was still thinking of the picnic, of our merriment on the drive home, of the sentimental young lady who would quote Child Harold because it was moonlight. I was absorbed by these past scenes and past amusements, when, in an instant, the thread on which my memories hung snapped asunder, my attention immediately came back to present things more vividly than ever, and I found myself... I neither knew why nor wherefore, looking hard at the picture again. Looking for what? Good God! The man had pulled his hat down on his brows. No, the hat itself was gone. Where was the conical crown? Where are the feathers? Three white, two green. Not there. In place of the hat and feathers, what dusky object was it that now hid his forehead, his eyes, his shading hand? Was the bed moving? I turned on my back and looked up. Was I mad? Drunk? Dreaming? Giddy again? Or was the top of the bed really moving down, sinking slowly, regularly, silently, horribly, 
right down throughout the whole of its length and breadth, right down upon me as I lay underneath? My blood seemed to stand still. A deadly, paralyzing coldness stole all over me as I turned my head round on the pillow and determined to test whether the bed top was really moving or not by keeping my eye on the man in the picture. The next look in that direction was enough. The dull, black, frowsy outline of the valance above me was within an inch of being parallel with his waist. I still looked breathlessly and steadily and slowly, very slowly. I saw the figure and the line of frame below the figure vanish as the valance moved downward before it. I am constitutionally anything but timid. I have been on more than one occasion in peril of my life and have not lost my self-possession for an instant. But when the conviction first settled on my mind that the bedtop was really moving, was steadily and continuously sinking down upon me, I looked up, shuddering, helpless, panic-stricken, beneath the hideous machinery for murder which was advancing closer and closer to suffocate me where I lay. I looked up, motionless, speechless, breathless. The candle, fully spent, went out. But the moonlight still brightened the room. Down and down, without pausing, without sounding, came the bed top. And still, my panic terror seemed to bind me faster and faster to the mattress on which I lay. Down and down it sank, till the dusty odor from the lining of the canopy came stealing into my nostrils. At that final moment, the instinct of self-preservation startled me out of my trance, and I moved at last. There was just room for me to roll myself sideways off the bed. As I dropped noiselessly to the floor, the edge of the murderous canopy touched me on the shoulder. Without stopping to draw my breath, without wiping the cold sweat from my face, I rose instantly on my knees to watch the bed top. I was literally spellbound by it. If I had heard footsteps behind me, I could not have turned round. If a means of escape had been miraculously provided for me, I could not have moved to take advantage of it. The whole life in me was, at that moment, concentrated in my eyes. It descended. The whole canopy with the fringe round it came down. Down. Close down. So close that there was not room now to squeeze my finger between the bed top and the bed. I felt at the sides and discovered that what had appeared to me from beneath to be the ordinary light canopy of a four-post bed was in reality a thick, broad mattress, the substance of which was concealed by the valance and its fringe. I looked up and saw the four posts rising hideously bare. In the middle of the bed top was a huge wooden screw that had evidently worked it down through a hole in the ceiling just as ordinary presses are worked down on the substance selected for compression. The frightful apparatus moved without making the faintest noise. There had been no creaking as it came down. There was now not the faintest sound from the room above. Amid a dead and awful silence, I beheld before me, in the nineteenth century, and in the civilized capital of France, such a machine for secret murder by suffocation as might have existed in the worst days of the Inquisition, in the lonely inns among the Hartz Mountains, in the mysterious tribunals of Westphalia. Still, as I looked on it, I could not move. 
I could hardly breathe, but I began to recover the power of thinking, and in a moment I discovered the murderous conspiracy framed against me in all its horror. My cup of coffee had been drugged, and drugged too strongly. I had been saved from being smothered by having taken an overdose of some narcotic. How I had chafed and fretted at the fever fit which had preserved my life by keeping me awake. How recklessly I had confided myself to the two wretches who had led me to this room, determined, for the sake of my winnings, to kill me in my sleep by the surest and most horrible contrivance for secretly accomplishing my destruction. How many men, winners like me, had slept as I had proposed to sleep in that bed, and had never been seen or heard of more. I shuddered at the bare idea of it. But ere long, all thought was again suspended by the sight of the murderous canopy moving once more. After it had remained on the bed, as nearly as I could guess, about ten minutes, it began to move up again. The villains who worked it from above evidently believed that their purpose was now accomplished. Slowly and silently as it had descended, that horrible bed-top rose towards its former place. When it reached the upper extremities of the four posts, it reached the ceiling too. Neither hole nor screw could be seen. The bed became, in appearance, an ordinary bed again. The canopy, an ordinary canopy, even to the most suspicious eyes. Now, for the first time, I was able to move, to rise from my knees, to dress myself in my upper clothing, and to consider of how I should escape. If I betrayed by the smallest noise that the attempt to suffocate me had failed, I was certain to be murdered. Had I made any noise already? I listened intently, looking towards the door. No. No footsteps in the passage outside. No sound of a tread, light or heavy, in the room above. Absolute silence everywhere. Besides locking and bolting my door, I had moved an old wooden chest against it, which I had found under the bed. To remove this chest, my blood ran cold as I thought of what its contents might be without making some disturbance, was impossible. And moreover, to think of escaping through the house, now barred up for the night, was sheer insanity. Only one chance was left me, the window. I stole up to it on tiptoe. My bedroom was on the first floor, above an entresol. As I looked into the back street, which you have sketched in your view, I raised my hands to open the window, knowing that on that action hung, by the merest hair breadth, my chance of safety. They kept vigilant watch in a house of murder. If any part of the frame creaked, if the hinge creaked, I was a lost man. It must have occupied me at least five minutes reckoning by time, five hours reckoning by suspense, to open that window. I succeeded in doing it silently, in doing it with all the dexterity of a housebreaker, and then looked down into the street. To leap the distance beneath me would be almost certain destruction. Next, I looked round at the sides of the house. Down the left side ran a thick water pipe which you have drawn. It passed close by the outer edge of the window. The moment I saw the pipe, I knew I was saved. My breath came and went freely for the first time since I had seen the canopy of the bed moving down upon me. To some men, the means of escape which I had discovered might have seemed difficult and dangerous enough. To me, the prospect of slipping down the pipe into the street did not suggest even a thought of peril. 
I had always been accustomed by the practice of gymnastics to keep up my schoolboy powers as a daring and expert climber, and knew that my head, hands, and feet would serve me faithfully in any hazards of ascent or descent. I had already got one leg over the window sill when I remembered the handkerchief filled with money under my pillow. I could well have afforded to leave it behind me, but I was revengefully determined that the miscreants of the gambling house should miss their plunder as well as their victim. So I went back to the bed and tied the heavy handkerchief at my back by my cravat. Just as I made it tight and fixed it in a comfortable place, I thought I heard a sound of breathing outside the door. The chill feeling of horror ran through me again as I listened. No, dead silence still in the passage. I had only heard the night air blowing softly into the room. The next moment I was on the window sill, and the next I had a firm grip on the water pipe with my hands and knees. I slid down into the street easily and quietly, as I thought I should, and immediately set off at the top of my speed to a branch prefecture of police, which I knew was situated in the immediate neighborhood. A sub-prefect of several picked men among his subordinates happened to be up, maturing, I believe, some scheme for discovering the perpetrator of a mysterious murder which all Paris was talking of just then. When I began my story in a breathless hurry and in very bad French, I could see that the sub-prefect suspected me of being a drunken Englishman who had robbed somebody, but he soon altered his opinion as I went on, and before I had anything like concluded, he shoved all the papers before him into a drawer, put on his hat, supplied me with another, for I was bareheaded, ordered a file of soldiers, desired his expert followers to get ready all sorts of tools for breaking open doors and ripping up brick flooring, and took my arm in the most friendly and familiar manner possible, to lead me with him out of the house. I will venture to say that when the sub-prefect was a little boy and was taken for the first time to the play, he was not half as much pleased as he was now at the job in prospect for him at the gambling house. Away we went through the streets, the sub-prefect cross-examining and congratulating me in the same breath as we marched at the head of our formidable posse comitatus. Sentinels were placed at the back and front of the house the moment we got to it. A tremendous battery of knocks was directed against the door. A light appeared at a window. I was told to conceal myself behind the police. Then came more knocks and a cry of, Open in the name of the law! At that terrible summons, bolts and locks gave way before an invisible hand, and the moment after, the sub-prefect was in the passage, confronting a waiter, half-dressed and ghastly pale. This was the short dialogue which immediately took place. We want to see the Englishman who was sleeping in the house. He went away hours ago. He did no such thing. His friend went away. He remained. Show us to his bedroom. I swear to you, Monsieur le Sous-Prefect, he is not here. He... I swear to you, Monsieur le Garçon, he is. He slept here. He didn't find your bed comfortable. He came to us to complain of it. Here he is, among my men. And here I am ready to look for a flea or two in his bedstead. Renardine, calling one of the subordinates and pointing to the waiter, collar that man and tie his hands behind him. Now then, gentlemen, let us walk upstairs. Every man and woman in the house was secured, the old soldier the first. Then I identified the bed in which I had slept, 
and then we went into the room above. No object that was at all extraordinary appeared in any part of it. The sub-prefect looked round the place, commanded everybody to be silent, stamped twice on the floor, called for a candle, looked attentively at the spot he had stamped on, and ordered the flooring there to be carefully taken up. This was done in no time. Lights were produced, and we saw a deep, rafted cavity between the floor of this room and the ceiling of the room beneath. Through this cavity there ran perpendicularly a sort of case of iron, thickly greased, and inside the case appeared the screw, which communicated with the bedtop below. Extra lengths of screw, freshly oiled, levers covered with felt, all the complete upper works of a heavy press, constructed with infernal ingenuity so as to join the fixtures below, and when taken to pieces again, to go into the smallest possible compass, were next discovered and pulled out on the floor. After some little difficulty, the sub-prefect succeeded in putting the machinery together, and leaving his men to work it, descended with me to the bedroom. The smothering canopy was then lowered, but not so noiselessly as I had seen it lowered. When I mentioned this to the sub-prefect, his answer, simple as it was, had a terrible significance. My men, he said, are working down the bedtop for the first time. The men whose money you won were in better practice. We left the house in the sole possession of two police agents, every one of the inmates being removed to prison on the spot. The sub-prefect, after taking down my process verbal in his office, returned with me to my hotel to get my passport. Do you think, I asked as I gave it to him, that any men have really been smothered in that bed as they tried to smother me? I have seen dozens of drowned men laid out in the morgue, answered the sub-prefect, in whose pocketbooks were found letters stating that they had committed suicide in the Seine because they had lost everything at the gambling table. Do I know how many of those men entered the same gambling house that you entered, won as you won, took that bed as you took it, slept in it, were smothered in it, and were privately thrown into the river with a letter of explanation written by the murderers and placed in their pocketbook? No man can say how many or how few have suffered the fate from which you have escaped. The people of the gambling house kept their bedstead machinery a secret from us, even from the police. The dead kept the rest of the secret for them. Good night, or rather, good morning, Monsieur Faulkner. Be at my office again at nine o'clock. In the meantime, au revoir. The rest of my story is soon told. I was examined and re-examined. The gambling house was strictly searched all through from top to bottom. The prisoners were separately interrogated, and two of the less guilty among them made a confession. Discovered that the old soldier was the master of the gambling house. Justice discovered that he had been drummed out of the army as a vagabond years ago, that he had been guilty of all sorts of villainies since, that he was in possession of stolen property which the owners identified, and that he, the croupier, another accomplice, and the woman who had made my cup of coffee were all in the secret of the bedstead. There appeared some reason to doubt whether the inferior persons attached to the house knew anything of the suffocating machinery, and they received the benefit of that doubt by being treated simply as thieves and vagabonds. As for the old soldier and his two-head myrmidons, they went to the galleys. The woman who had drugged my coffee was imprisoned for I forget how many years. 
The regular attendants at the gambling house were considered suspicious and placed under surveillance. And I became, for one whole week, which is a long time, the head lion in Parisian society. My adventure was dramatized by three illustrious playmakers, but never saw theatrical daylight, for the censorship forbade the introduction on the stage of a correct copy of the gambling house bedstead. One good result was produced by my adventures, which any censorship must have approved. It cured me of ever again trying Rouge et Noir as an amusement. The sight of a green cloth with packs of cards and heaps of money on it will henceforth be forever associated in my mind with the sight of a bed canopy descending to suffocate me in the silence and darkness of the night. Just as Mr. Faulkner pronounced these words, he started in his chair and resumed his stiff, dignified position in a great hurry. "'Bless my soul!' he cried with a comic look of astonishment and vexation. "'While I have been telling you what was the real secret of my interest in the sketch you have so kindly given to me, I have altogether forgotten that I came here to sit for my portrait. For the last hour or more I must have been the worst model you ever had to draw from.' "'On the contrary, you have been the best,' said I. "'I have been trying to catch your likeness, "'and while telling your story, "'you have shown me the natural expression "'I wanted to ensure my success.'" Note by Miss Kirby. I cannot let this story end without mentioning what the chance saying was which caused it to be told at the farmhouse the other night. Our friend, the young sailor, among his other quaint objections to sleeping on shore, declared that he particularly hated four-post beds, because he never slept in one without doubting whether the top might not come down in the night and suffocate him. I thought this chance reference to the distinguishing features of William's narrative curious enough, and my husband agreed with me, but he says it is scarcely worthwhile to mention such a trifle in anything so important as a book. I cannot venture after this to do more than slip these lines in modestly at the end of the story. If the printer should notice my few last words, perhaps he may not mind the trouble of putting them into some out-of-the-way corner. L. K. Well, that story first appeared in 1852 in Household Words, which was a magazine edited by Charles Dickens. It later appeared in the book After Dark in 1856. In this book, the prologue was added as a narrative framework to tie it together to the other five stories that also appeared in the book. Well, thank you again for joining us tonight for the story. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact us uh, via our email at bygonetales at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us at our website, mccartneylane.com. Just click on the links to the podcasts and you'll find us right there. Each one of our uh, blog episodes has a space for comments, so feel free to drop by and leave a comment. You can also find us on Facebook at Bygone Tales Podcast. And uh, we just recently finished up the serialization of Lord Dunsany's Tales of Pagana, and we will very soon be getting back into Fables by Ambrose Bierce. Uh, but uh, feel free to come by and uh, leave a comment, ask a question. I, I do check it pretty much every day. 
And if you send us an email, I will get back to you as soon as possible. Again, I want to say thank you for listening to us this evening, and until next time. Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Well, as the holiday season approaches, sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. If you're interested in the game Magic the Gathering, they also have Magic the Gathering graded magic cards. They have all slabbed cards and rare BGS graded cards. Now, I'll admit, I don't know what that means, but they assure me if you're into Magic the Gathering, you will know what that means, and they have a great selection. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay and check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.